welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. So we're wrapping up our Restored series. We've had a journey and we're going to spend some time this morning in the Old Testament and then we're um, on the story of Naaman. And then we're also going to see what happens when Jesus brings up his name and um, what happens as a result of that as well. It's really interesting how it all ties together and I think is a wonderful way to tie together the individual restoration that God has for us, but also the restoration that is ultimately a part of his plan for all of creation. So as we... um, Read the scripture if you'll stand as you are able, please. I'm going to be reading this morning from 2 Kings 5, 1 through 17. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. He's referring to Elisha. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message, Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him to say, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, wave his hand over this spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, far better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, I will not accept a thing 
And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, Naaman said, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. The word of God for you and me, the people of God. You may be seated. So through this story, the common thread that I really picked up on was the sin of pride. And it's just kind of woven throughout this whole story. It reveals a lot about how we have a tendency, I think, to respond to God's grace by letting our pride get in the way. Naaman was a celebrated military commander. He has everything he needs. Power, respect, money. But when we look at who has the beginning influence, who kickstarts this whole story and sends him on this journey, is a slave girl who was taken and conquered from Israel and now serves his wife. She has no power. She has no authority. And as we look through that story, we'll notice that it's the slave girl, it's Elisha, and it's his servant that tend to speak the truth throughout this, that tend to be the ones to proclaim that truth and speak that truth to Naaman. She was the one who was most likely to recognize God's authority and truth are not political leaders and power brokers. She sent him to the prophet. When I started to think about it, I wondered what kind of motivated her to put herself out there like that. First of all, she was probably more intimately knowledgeable of the suffering that he was going through than anyone else. I'm sure he did a very good job of of covering up his leprosy, of any ailments, of any signs of weakness when he was out in public. But his wife and his family would have known the true extent of his suffering. And she knew that. She knew what could not be covered and hidden from the rest of the world. She was a messenger of truth, not another king, not a high-ranking member of society. She was the lowest and the least likely, according to society, to have anything to offer to Naaman. But how great is her God? She's a conquered people. Why would he even think, oh, your God could have the answers to this. I've already conquered your people. You are my slave as a result of what I have done. My God's are obviously better than yours. But there must have been some, I think, degree of suffering that he was going through because he was desperate enough to listen to a slave girl. Her God, she knew, could heal her master. And even though he was a Syrian, and by all accounts her enemy, she had been taken away from her family, from everything that she knew, she was a slave, because her people had been conquered. But she was willing to share her God, his power, and his grace to restore and heal this man. I think her faith is incredible in this story. And when I think about it, when she offered that advice to him, imagine if he had gone on this journey and look at all that he did when he went, the entourage he took, and he went and he wasn't healed, I'm pretty sure she wouldn't have survived that. When he got back, she would have felt the wrath of that. 
If she had sent him on some wild goose chase and humiliated him, that would not have ended well from her. She was willing to speak that truth. She believed it so vehemently and strongly. She knew who her God was. She was so well acquainted with his grace and his healing power that she was willing to send her her master on that journey. It's this idea that we are to love our enemies and care for those that we may not see as redeemable. It's always been the passion and it's always been the commandment of God. And it's not just a theory, but it's the way that we are called to live out our lives in a tangible way. And that's what she was doing right then. She was living that out in the most tangible way possible. And we've established that Naaman is an important and powerful person, commander of an army. But we start to see his pride show. And this is where things first get messed up, as it usually does with pride. If we go back to Adam and Eve, we can trace that whole thing back to our pride problem as well. And so we can see how that seems to be a common theme when, for us as human beings, that um, when that starts to enter the picture, sin starts to enter the picture. First he leaves and he goes to his king. And it would make sense that he would approach his king. He's going into a land that he's conquered. People aren't going to be real happy to see him. He needs a letter. He needs someone to, to kind of introduce him and, and cover him and to, to, to uh, smooth over some rough edges so that he can go to this country or go to this area. And he says, the king, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. And he's writing that to the king of Israel. The king of Aram writes his letter to explain that presence, to explain why he's there. But he left God completely out of the picture. Naaman and the king of Aram are already off base as he's redirected to the king of Israel. Notice the slave girl, she never mentioned, you know, stop by the king. He's the one, the king of this person. He's not, never even mentioned him. But surely someone as important as him, as powerful as him, would be entertained by kings. And the king of Israel is presented with this letter, and he tears his clothing, which is a very public display. It's a very public way of showing your grief and your, your fear. And he acknowledges, when he does that, that it's only God that he can do this. He says, why? Why do you ask me to do something that God can do? Why are you picking a fight with me? And I call this his all-about-me moment. He acknowledges that God is the one who can do this. But notice where he stops. He doesn't call on God. He just stops and has his own little all-about-me moment. How is this going to affect me? This isn't going to go well. I'm being set up. How is it going to affect me? Not once does he point the finger to God, does he acknowledge God's role in this, and he doesn't stop to glorify God in the midst of this. That made me stop and think a lot. (laughs) When we're faced with a lot of things in life, Our first instinct is to go into that all about me moment. How is this going to affect me? How is this going to affect my family? 
What's going to happen to us? Am I going to be safe? Are we going to be safe? All of those things, and they're valid questions. But we have to be able to move on beyond that to remember who is in charge and who does deserve the glory. And that's God. That's who needs to be glorified, and that's where we have to turn from in those moments. And it can be so hard to do that. But Elisha hears of the king tearing his clothes and tells him to come to him so that he will know there is a prophet in Israel. Clearly, Elisha understands and knows that the healing is not going to come from human or earthly means. Restoration of Naaman will come not through the king or even the prophet, but will come through the God of Israel. So Naaman goes to Elisha, who sends his messenger out. Not the way things are done. Does not acknowledge his importance. Is not even willing to see him. Just sends his messenger. And of course, Naaman's pride kicks into overdrive here at this point. He is already pretty mad about this situation because he has not done things according to etiquette. He feels slighted. But we also see where he's built up in his head, Naaman, how this is supposed to go. He decided how this was supposed to go, not allowing God to be in control of it. He had his own ideas about how restoration works, how righteousness, how justice, how all that works. But God doesn't move according to our will, but to his. And Elisha, the reason why he didn't go out and greet him was because he wanted it to be clear. He wanted to make sure that Naaman understood that his healing came from God, not from him. Naaman's anger and pride got in in the way of him hearing a really simple message. If he had done as Naaman wanted and stand and called and waved his hand and cured the leprosy, then Elisha would have received the credit. This way, only God could be glorified. And notice he even scorns the river that he's supposed to wash in. It just shows how differently God sees something and how we as humans see something. But his servant, we go back to that least likely person to point these things out. His servant points out, if you were told to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? If you had to go climb a mountain, if you had to go conquer a land, if you had to go take all these gifts that you have brought and lay them down as a sacrifice, if you had to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? And now you're being told to do something pretty simple. Seems like kind of a no-brainer to him. And notice again that the truth seems to come from the people below him, not from where we expect it by earthly means. And we can see what is standing in Naaman's way. It's his thinking and understanding of the way things should go. All of his prior beliefs and ways he has ordered his worship and his relationship to his gods, his value and worth, everything is being torn apart. Everything is being deconstructed at this point. And this is where our pride kicks in when we desperately try to hold on to the things that are familiar to us, and we try to hold on to that sin. As human beings, we will default to the familiar and what we know, even when it is keeping us 
from being restored to God's presence. I'm going to say that one more time. We will hold on to the familiar desperately, even if it prevents us from being restored. Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. It feels familiar. It feels comfortable. But he's come all this way based on something a slave girl told him. So he must be desperate for healing. But it is not going according to his preconceived notions. And so at this point, he is, as I put it, taking his toys and going home. He brought all this gold and silver and clothing with him. I looked it up. The amount of silver he has with him is about 750 pounds of silver, about 150 pounds of gold. He has chariots. He has an entourage. He is about ready to pack it up and head home. He can't earn God's favor. That's what he's been accustomed to. Look at the gold and silver he brought with him. He was accustomed to earning the favor of his gods through his acts and his offerings. He was ready to strike a deal with God. This just means he hasn't figured out who God really is yet. He doesn't really understand who this God of Israel is because he's willing to bargain with him. He hasn't figured out that it's all dependent on God. It's not about what he's going to do to be restored. It's what God, through his grace and his love, is going to do for him to restore him. How often do we try to earn God's favor so that we don't have to deal with the stuff that we have at hand? All we really need to do is lay down that pride and that sin and step into God's presence but it's so hard to do sometimes. And his status as a conqueror and commander isn't helping him either. Elisha did not acknowledge it. He sent his messenger to greet him, and nothing is going as he planned it. But then he decides to obey. He decides it's worth a shot. I don't think his heart is fully transformed at this point. I don't think that that has happened. I think it's still kind of a, well, I'm here. I might as well give this a shot. But he washes himself seven times. And I've thought a lot about this this past week. One of the commentaries I read mentioned that on the sixth time he washed himself, he still wasn't healed. He had to go through that process seven times. And I wonder what was going through his mind on the sixth time. Okay, God, we should at least be seeing a little progress here. You know, something, you know, like give me something here. But he had to follow all the way through. His faith had to see him through. And he's healed. And now he understands. And he says, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. And he goes on to say, I will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. Now he is truly starting to understand that this is a God worthy of worship and praise. 
God shows us mercy when we obey by responding to his love and righteousness that he has shown us. God's instructions via Elisha were not a test. This wasn't a test to see if he could pass it. God isn't testing us with the things that happen in our lives. It was God's grace being offered, not just to Israel, but to anyone who obeyed. And we either surrender to that and are blessed, or we continue to live under the burden of our own pride. The lesson from this, grace cannot be dictated. Grace cannot be repaid. And grace must be obeyed. And not obeyed so we can earn our way into heaven or earn our way into God's presence, but obedience because our hearts are transformed, because we are letting go of our own agenda, of our own sin and our own brokenness, and we're embracing God's grace and love. We're responding to that. Elisha didn't give him a command as much as he just offered God's grace. He offered healing. He offered restoration. It takes that first act of faith, that obedience, that happens when we put aside our own pride and our own ideas of who God is and how we think he should operate. As we put aside our pride, it's our pride that makes us doubt God and his plans. Like I mentioned earlier, look back to Adam and Eve. It was their pride that make them, made them think, hmm, I might have something to, better to offer than what God's figured out here so far. And throughout this series of events, God is working on Naaman's pride and deconstructing his ideas of how the world should be organized and work. He's working on his heart. He's not after Naaman's obedience. He's after his heart. And from Elisha, we learn what ministry looks like when our pride does not get in the way. Elisha wanted Naaman to know that no one is above God, not even an Assyrian war hero or king. I think in today's terms, if they had been modern day, they would have been on Instagram and Facebook. And they would have, it would have been a nice little PR stunt. I mean, you know, Naaman shows up. He expects to be greeted by the king, expects to be greeted by Elisha. I mean, it would have made a great, great, tweetable, Instagrammable moment. Elisha heals him. And they share that with everyone. But who gets the glory in that? It's what Elisha was avoiding. He knew. He knew that he couldn't let himself or even Naaman get the glory, that the glory had to go to God. Elisha's pride didn't take over. He didn't fit the mold. He didn't fit what everyone else had done. But God's people rarely ever fit the mold. He was bold. Elisha was bold and blunt in his message. He didn't mince words. He told him what to do. He didn't pander to, to Naaman. He didn't pander to what society or powerful people said was the best way to do things. He knew God's heart. And so we've seen how Naaman has responded. We've seen how he has been restored, and we've seen how he's been healed. Once he let go of that pride, once he accepted and moved in faith, 
and move towards God's presence and move towards that obedience. When we move forward into the New Testament, in Luke chapter 4, verses 4 through, it actually goes through 30, but I'm not going to read the whole part of it. But I'm going to give you a little background and then I'm going to read a little bit of the scripture with you. So this is just after Jesus has been tested. He's left the wilderness, and he is in Galilee, and he's at the synagogue in Nazareth, and he's preaching there. This is the first public account in Luke that we come to. And during this time, he's reading from the scrolls, and he talks a little bit about, I'm going to pick up there where he starts to read from the scrolls. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled it up, he gave it back, and everyone was looking at him. And he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they all spoke well of him, and they were amazed, and they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? And Jesus said, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you can do in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there are many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. That's where that name comes back up. And this is where the stories, I think, start to tie together, especially. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So what is it about That story that riled a whole lot of people up pretty badly, huh? (laughs) And I don't think it's Naaman in particular, that story, but it's Jesus is reminding them that God's restoration isn't just for Israel. That all along, he's been revealing his plan of redemption and restoration. But the people get angry. Their pride rears its ugly head. Jesus is bold and blunt in making sure that they understand that he came for the redemption of all, not just a chosen few. They didn't want to listen to what Jesus had to say, and they wanted him to do miracles like they had heard of in Luke just previous to this. They wanted it to go according to their own plan. You see the similarities? God did not love Israel to only love Israel. God chose Abraham and his descendants through Isaac to bring his gracious blessings to all people. God's plan all along was redemption and healing 
for us as individuals and for all of creation. It was done through Israel, yes, through Abraham's descendants. But all along, God's been healing and restoring those outside of of Israel. Because he's trying to get us to see that he is here to minister to the broken and the outcast and our enemies and those who do not share our faith. And Jesus is suggesting that God is not doing anything new here. This is what he's been up to all along. We tend to think of Jesus as the first time that God reached out to the Gentiles, but it's clearly not. This has been God's mission. This has been God's recovery mission, his restoration, his redemption plan all along. Naaman's pride got in the way. The Nazarene's pride got in the way of them hearing God's message. Notice it came from someone, Jesus. Oh, aren't you Joseph's son? You're that hometown boy. We've seen you grow up. Are we really going to take you seriously? That pride gets in the way. It's an obstacle. But Naaman listened and obeyed. And even though everything about the situation was counter to his previous beliefs, he obeyed and he was healed and his life was transformed. God's message is simple. Repent and be baptized. In Acts 2, 37 through 40... As we follow what Peter says, it says, when the people heard that, oh, this is right after Jesus has been crucified, and um, all of Israel assured this to God. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And they accepted his message and were baptized, and 3,000 more were added to his numbers that day. But they were called to repent, to set their pride, to set their sin aside, and be baptized. And throughout this story, God reveals how he restores us as individuals and how he is restoring everyone. His grace is available to everyone and always has been. We are called to share that good news with everyone, our enemies, the people that we think are the least likely to want to hear it, the least likely to be receptive. That's who we're called to share it with. Those who take a while to figure it out. Naaman didn't figure it out right away. He had a lot of missteps along there. But God didn't turn his back on him. He didn't wait till he got to the River Jordan to go, well, you know, you didn't do this quite right. You didn't get here quite as fast as I wanted you to. You took a little different path here. No. His grace is constant. We can rest assured in it. 
and it's there. It's been available to everyone and always has been and always will be. There is no sin, no path that you can take that will prevent that grace from being available to you. And as we're called to share that with everyone and help them to understand that, once we've experienced that, we can't help but to share that restoration with others. And that happens when we love unconditionally like the slave girl and are willing to tell those who need it the most about God's grace. When we are willing to put everything at stake so that someone else can experience what we already have. There's a quote that I showed up yesterday on my Facebook feed. Um, don't necessarily sometimes think that everything on Facebook is definitely not of God. Um, but this was from the Seedbed Devotional. And it showed up as I was wrapping, wrapping this up. And I started to think this is the perfect way to wrap up um, this sermon. It's a quote from Dan Wilt. Um, and it says, Lord, reveal in us what is formless and empty in our hearts. So you can speak your word to it, your freeing, ordering word, awakening us to be the beautiful creations you intended us to be. I'm going to read that one more time. Lord, reveal to us what is formless and empty in our hearts, so you can speak your word into it, your freeing, your ordering word, Awakening us to be the beautiful creations you intended us to be. That's what he was doing in all this. He was speaking into Naaman's heart. He was reforming it. He was filling it with him. He reordered his world through his word. Ultimately, through the word, Jesus Christ. That's how our world, that's how our hearts are reordered and reformed and awakening us to be the beautiful creatures fully restored fully redeemed in God's presence that you intended us to be in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit Amen